Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Manchester's indie rock and roll station. Excess Manchester. The Excess Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. You're right, I'm Jim Salverson and this is The Excess Long Player. A classic album discussed in full with one of the people who helped make it. This show is part of a radio programme on Excess Manchester, which is a radio station in Manchester. Broadcasts on 106.1 FM in the city, but you can get it outside the city on excessmanchester.co.uk. There's also an app you can get. The reason I tell you this is because the show that goes out on the radio is this interview, kind of spliced up, but then stuck between the songs of the album, so we play the album in full. It's a really unique experience, and it happens every Thursday night. That's GMT, Manchester time, at 8 o'clock. I'd love it if you join me for that. But enjoy today's podcast, enjoy the episode, because today I'm speaking to Rick McMurray from the band Ash about their debut album, 1977, which is a brilliant album. At the time, was kind of classed as Britpop, when you listen back to it. It's got a bit more of a punk vibe than most of the stuff around that time, maybe a bit of grunge as well, something I discussed with Rick during this interview when we talk about the influences behind it. I've seen Ash a few times through the years, and to me they've always looked like a band that just love what they do, they just have fun. They appreciate being in a band and making music, and from this conversation it was awesome to hear that that is 100% the case, because the making of 1977 just sounds like a whole load of fun. We also talk at the end of the podcast about their infamous final hidden track on this album, Sick Party, and the story behind that is fascinating. Enjoy the podcast, Rick McMurray from Ash, talking about their debut album, 1977. How you doing, Rick? I'm not too bad, yeah, yeah. Up here in Scotland, where I've been living for the last 15 years, and we're in the last week of sort of like school holidays and be starting soon. So, um, yeah, feeling feel a bit frantic. We've got tired kids looking forward to holidays, and we're actually we're, we're going as far as grandparents and stuff like that. So it's uh, the first time of sort of leaving our five-mile little bubble here. So, yeah, good, excited, nervous, but fine. <laughs> I, I always find it slightly strange when you talk to musicians or and people who play to thousands of people on stage with bands when they talk about normal life when they talk about kids and families and bubbles and grandparents it's kind of it's quite earthing I quite like it yeah yeah and I guess that's kind of all that pretty much all of us have known for the last sort of year yeah. and a half well so yeah it, it's good I mean we we did we did some since we're doing the 1977 thing we actually did a 1977 gig with a company called Stable a couple of weeks ago recorded live it's like they don't want it called a live stream, by the way, so I'll not use the word live stream, but 
but it's that kind of thing, mm. but just with a kind of higher production value. But that's like kind of the first time I'd seen the other guys in the band. And we got to record the 1977 show and another show, which is probably going on at a later date. But yeah, that's like in the last sort of year and a half, that's the only thing we've we've managed to do. First time wow. I've seen the guys and I guess I guess home life's all I've got to talk about. <laughs> well, like like you said, the focus is on your debut album, 1977. Normally when I start these interviews, I talk about the kind of, process going into the studio what it felt like as a band before that but i want to start today in a slightly different place because when i was listening back to 1977 as an album in preparation for this interview i'd completely forgotten about how the album starts and because i'm a bit of a geek i recognize the sound effect on the the opening track is that of a star wars tie fighter now there must be i don't think i've ever heard if or why there is a story behind that being included i mean i know that star wars came out in 1977 is that purely the connection between the sound and the opening of the album and the name of the album yeah i mean well, well tim and mark and the band they were both born in 1977 so that was a big influence on the name but you know we were all big, big massive star wars fans as well and it's just like i can't remember who came up with the idea i got a feeling it might have been mark but he was just like the sound of a tie fighter going into this so we i think we we dug out a vhs copy of it in the studio and sampled it and put it on there and surprisingly, we got away with it as well. I think it's short enough that George Lucas let that one go by. But, are, you um, are you suggesting you didn't license it properly? It wasn't a proper uh, agreement with the Star Wars companies? Possibly not, but I think I think <laughs> Star Wars has probably got their got their money's worth out of the band over, over the years anyway, in terms of the, the amount of promotion we gave them as well. Because I guess yeah, ninety six. I mean, Star Wars was like there was no news of any new movies in the horizon or anything like that. You know, it was like a it was quite a like nostalgia thing for us at that point as well. And, you know, it was only a few years ago when they sort of like rebooted the whole series and released the new movies that it sort of became like a, a bigger cultural thing as well. So it was just a kind of a nod to our youth. And I think I think the TIE Fighter probably came before the album title because we were notoriously bad with coming up with titles. I mean, I think in the studio we'd have massive like suggestion box of, of ideas and they're all just like kind of like terrible, jokey things. And mm. I think Tim eventually came up with a 1977 angle and the, maybe the TIE Fighter influence in it. Who knows? Well, it's a certainly a unique start to the album. I want to rewind a little bit further and talk about going into recording this album and the balancing of pressure and expectations on the band when you signed the contract and you found out you were going to be recording your debut album. I've spoken to a few bands through the years who were managing jobs or had just quit their jobs and were making music at the same time. For you guys, I guess it was slightly different because you were a little bit younger. I think whilst you were recording 1977, a couple of the band were still doing their A-levels and balancing music with that. At the age of 16, 17, it must have been a lot to take on, the idea that you were embarking on this journey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'd, I think we'd at that point we'd actually left school. I guess we were still, we'd recorded like a run of singles beforehand, like mm. in the year leading up to it. So we'd done like Kung Fu, which weirdly was going to be a b-side uh, which was written like sort of five minutes before we left to go to the studio to record what we thought was going to be the first single angel interceptor which we recorded and then kung fu was written in five minutes and it was just like it was so great we're like now this is kind of this is the way to, to kick things off and that became mm. our our first single off the album but one thing that was which is really weird for a debut as well is that we had actually like a, a mini album beforehand so it was Things were very unusual, you know, with us being in school, starting to record this album, having used up, like, I think all our sort of, like, best songs from the early days of the band and our demos on that. 
with the exception of Girl from Mars, which we kind of we held back because we wanted that to come out after we left school that we could give it like a sufficient sort of push because everyone kind of had this feeling about that song that there's something special about it. So it was this mix of all these different sort of things going on as we were leaving school and doing recording during holiday times and doing little bits and pieces of touring and then sort of going on our world tour to support the mini album, which had come out the year before, supporting Girl From Mars, which had just come out and sort of like having having our first like international touring, like going to Japan and going to Australia, going to America for the first time. So all this was kind of feeding in and we had a, like a string of singles, like I guess we had three singles before we went in to record the album proper. And then we were kind of like, we'd had no writing time and we were kind of writing on the road and writing in the studio as well. So it was, it was such a, such a strange period. So was this album almost like, I mean, this is your debut album, but was it almost like that difficult second album coming early? Yeah, it was sort of like elements of both, I guess, going on. But we were also kind of riding this kind of wave of, you know, like everything we were releasing, like Kung Fu, which came out in, I guess that was March of the previous year, Angel Interceptor in like around October. Everything just felt like it was building and we were getting like more front magazine covers and stuff like that. We were building up to this this album, which we hadn't quite finished and we were, had this sort of pressure on us. But I think, you know, it was like equal parts sort of like studio pressure to come up with the goods, but also having this sort of like riding this wave of success at the yeah. same time. It was like a a real sort of like roller coaster experience but you know we we're back you know, just having left school as well having the time of our lives so it was there's a lot of stuff feeding into this record one of the things that surprised me about a few of these conversations is a lot of bands when they have been recording their debut album there hasn't been that one moment there hasn't been kind of that walking into a recording studio guitar under their arm about to embark on this thing that's going to potentially change their lives now, you guys recorded in 1977, or certainly a lot of the songs in Rockfield Studios, which is a studios in Wales, which has got a huge heritage. People like Manic Street Preachers and Stone Roses have recorded down there through the years. Did you have that moment? Did you have this day where it suddenly all started to feel very real? I think probably when we recorded Kung Fu, actually, was just like a, a real moment, like coming up with that song just, you know, five minutes before we we're supposed to leave for the airport to go to the studio and do mm. some recording. You know, we'd obviously recorded trailer before, but we were working this time. It was our first time working with Owen Morris, who produced Oasis and we getting like huge success at that point. And that, that felt like, you know, like we were kind of doing it for real and we're looking forward to the summer where we're kind of leaving school and to be doing this full time. It was just like that sort of, and we had been doing it for a while, but that felt like it was sort of, sort of crystallizing sort of like, everything it was like mm. it felt a bit more kind of proper at that point you know uh, when the album came out in 1996 it was classed very much as part of the Britpop scene which was massive at the time obviously with blur and pulp and sleeper oasis whoever going into that did you feel like you were part of that scene because sonically it's a very different album it's probably closer to nirvana or green day or the contemporaries in america rather than what was happening over in this country yeah, well, I think you're hitting the uh, the influences, the, the nail right in the head there. You <laughs> mentioned Yeah, I mean that was like Nirvana was a huge part of our like musical development and you know coming together as a band. I mean we we'd all been like kind of heavy metal kids in our early teens, mm. and the, the whole Nirvana thing, you know, as very young musicians just trying to figure out what we were doing. That was like kind of this is you know this is kind of simplistic heartfelt music is, you know, really speaking to us as people rather than sort of this sort of metal sort of like showing off like how many notes you can play in, in a solo kind of idea. So that was like, that kind of revolutionized our thinking about music. And that was like the main inspiration for us and got us into 
more alternative music like you know the pixies and from that we're, we're looking at a lot of the seattle scene a lot of like punk influences like the ramones the stooges and obviously a, a doorway into uk like uh, teenage fan club ride so that that was all feeding in that was that was like our first kind of love and our inspiration but i guess you know we did in a way we did have a toe in the in the brit pop camp more through being produced by Owen morris and we learned a huge amount from Owen as well. So there was, there was a, a bit of a toe in there, but we never felt like we fit, we fit in with, you know, any of our contemporaries so much. We were definitely taking our, taking our influence from the other side of the Atlantic more than most bands that we knew. I'm always really interested to hear how musicians feel the producer has enhanced or changed or developed their album. Is there anything you listen to on this album where you go, well, that was pure Owen Morris. That wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for his presence in creating this. I think it's. I think just in terms of really getting to grips with the studio, like the first thing when we did our mini album trailer, that was like our first proper experience of it. I think as musicians, we were we hadn't done a huge amount of touring at that point either, so it was hard work, kind of just getting like getting the songs down. But this was it. It was almost kind of introducing us to more sort of creative ways to work. Just the kind of we kind of embraced the madness. Owen is very much known for, maybe unfairly in a way, because you know he is he is a great producer and his like sonic ideas. But yeah, it's just like making the, making the studio somewhere where, where you're like, having fun and just like I guess he he brought that sort of like sense of bravado to the band as well that we probably didn't have. You know, it's like just doing things to get our confidence up that we were enjoying the experience and not feeling like you know we're doing like twenty takes of this song and it's it's hard work. So just mm. keeping that vibe going and keeping that energy going was was something he really brought to other, you know, and we, you know, sonically learned a lot about, you know, like sculpting the sound, overdubbing and sort of like bringing in various elements. So yeah, we, we learned a huge amount, but interesting. I've heard him talk about it, like reminisce about that experience before. And he was saying, you know, it's like Tim wasn't a shrinking violet when it came to like throwing ideas down as well. I mean, yeah. we would be like, you know, what if you try this? And like Tim, Tim would be off like trying completely different things as well. So <laughs> Owen kind of credit has credited him before with like amazing ideas that he came up with as well. So it was really, it was co- collaborative, but he kind of like really encouraged that side of us as well, you know? Do you think that was an important part of making this album? Maybe because you guys were so young going into it that it was important to A, and turn it into a, a positive, creative environment and allow you to flourish, but also because when you listen to the album, it's full of this really youthful energy. And I guess capturing that was probably challenging in that kind of environment, but really important for how the album was going to sound as well. Absolutely, yeah, and he he really brought that out of us, and you know, just just thinking about it, you know, maybe to a certain extent, he helped kind of shield us from feeling that pressure so much mm. at the time, you know, because it was just a, a case of he brought out this sort of like vibe of you know we we can do anything, you know, he he was he was the one who was like so into it all the time, and it just made it like a, a great experience, and like made us believe that we we're creating something that was going to be like remembered and be special, and going to like he's talking about having number one records with Oasis and, and stuff like that. It kind of made us feel part of that world in, in a way yeah. and you know, made us really believe in ourselves. I want to talk about a couple of the tracks off the album, most of which you've mentioned already, actually, but just do a little bit of a deep dive on a couple of them, uh, starting with the opening track, Lose Control, that we've already mentioned. Now, I heard Tim saying in an interview that he wanted the opening track of this album to be a punch in the face. 
did you land the punch? And was that what the band wanted to do? Was it really a case of, hang on, we want to make people sit up and take notice to what we're doing because it feels like it's something slightly different? Absolutely. I mean, there's there's so much going on in that song that's, um, you know, that we're really known for. And, you know, the, the amount of shows that we've opened that with over our career is just astonishing. It's like it's probably been the opener to our set more times than it hasn't. And it really it kind of encapsulates what we were about. You know, it's like there's a lot of like quite discordant elements in there. That opening riffs a real kind of nod to Sonic Youth, I guess. Mm. You know, there's like sort of some of the choices. I think I, I think during lockdown, I was I was actually trying to learn to play it as a drummer. I've never played it on guitar. I was just going. I was like on the phone to Tim, going, "Are these chords right?" <laughs> it's like none of this made it. It didn't make any sense to me, but it's like it just fits together so well. Sonically, there's a, there's a lot going on there mm-hmm. at a musical level that probably shouldn't work, but really does. And yeah, it's just like, it's super up-tempo, but at the same time, it's like sometimes like Tim can take these discordant elements and just like fashion this great memorable melody out of it. I think it, it does a lot. And I guess, you know, going back to talking about the Britpop thing, it's like, I don't think anyone was writing songs like that during the Britpop era. No. Probably, I guess the song that fits most in with the Britpop era or the Britpop sound would probably be Girl From Mars, which I think it's hard to argue is maybe your rec- most recognisable song. It's got an insane amount of streams on Spotify. It's it's played on radio stations all over the land. Now, this was written when Tim was only 16. And I'm going to ask you slightly to speak on his behalf here because it's one of those songs that's about relationships and it's about feelings and it's a really personal song, but not many people enjoy looking back on themselves as 16-year-olds when they're expressing those opinions. I'm thinking of people looking back into old diary entries and things like that. How has Tim and how's the band's relationship changed with this song through the years? It's weird. It really hasn't changed. It feels like the song's kind of grown with us. You know, it, mm. it feels like part of our DNA. I don't think there's been a single gig where we haven't played that song. There'd be a riot, wouldn't there? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like... You know, as we as we're growing up, you hear hear like bands like you know Radiohead are the the example that springs most readily to mind. You know, it's like they for years didn't play Creep because mm. like they didn't want that to be the only thing they're known known for. But we've never felt like that was the only thing we were known for. We never felt like no. we had to sort of deny it. And we, as a live thing, we've always just we've always fed off the audience as well. You know, and this may be because, you know, we were such a young band at the time. And it was like when we were touring in 1977, like uh, leading up to the release and like through that whole year, it was a weird thing that it felt like there wasn't much of a like division between audience and band because we were all the same age. We were all, we'd all gone through pretty much the same experiences bar, I guess, you know, we'd gone and re- recorded this album and stuff. But the, the experiences that these kids, you know, maybe a year younger than us were going through is exactly what we went through the year before. So it was like, we felt very much together and still with our audience, you know, it's like when we play it, we, we've now got families coming where we've got like young kids with their parents mm. who've grown up with this song. And it just feels like it's something that's spanned the kind of the generations of fans as well. So it's nothing we've really sort of shied away from. I think, I don't think I've ever heard Tim like sort of like feel weird about having to sing it. Uh, I think he's able to, sort of distance himself. And it may be because he was probably already like distanced by a couple of years by the time it was released as well. Right. Because it was written in 93, I want to say. Held back, so we a couple of years between it. So he's, I guess maybe he didn't feel that personal with the lyrics as it was released, maybe. I don't know. 
You must have had an idea that it was a bit of a special song. The fact that you held it back from the mini album you already discussed and it was kept for the debut. You must have, when, when it was written, when you first heard it, you must have kind of gone, well, this is something a bit special. I think when we wrote it, yeah, I think it was more when we were going in to record as well. We, we started touring like, on the mainland UK, got a record deal. That was the song that I think was a big influence in that. But it was also a concern to give the song as much of a chance as possible. So to, to hold it back and it was, I guess it was a smart move, smart move to make. Mm. Um, but we, we were all kind of on board with that because it, it almost felt like it didn't really fit with the mini album trailer, didn't fit with its kind of ethos. There was definitely something quite different about it. I'm going to pick one more tune that I want to talk about and then I'm going to ask you to pick a couple of moments from the album that could be positives or negatives or musical moments or memories or whatever, but we'll get onto that shortly. The last one I want to pick out is Kung Fu, which I think is one of the other standout tracks on the album. Now, I understand this was written in five minutes and recorded in just one take. A, is that right? And also, it was that symptomatic of the way the band wrote and recorded. Was it a quick process? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that, that one was definitely one of the quickest for sure. I remember as we were booked into the studio, we were going to record Angel Interceptor as the single that was going to come out first, and then we'd have Girl From Mars, and then we'd go into the album. But Kung Fu was like, I think Tim had got a bunch of Ramones CDs. He was like super into them at the time. And there'd been this, I think it was a series of Kung Fu movies were being shown just before Christmas. So he was like super into Kung Fu. He also injured his knee. That's right, he was doing like... Tai Jitsu or something like that and he'd injured his knee so he couldn't actually do it so he was just at home watching a load of Kung Fu movies listening to the Ramones and then just like five minutes before it's like time to go to the airport Tim's like hang on I've had this idea and he's just like just trying to like make sure he remembers it in his head I think he might have even like just recorded it onto the cassette or something but he's just like yeah I've just written this song I think it's going to be a really cool b-side and then we go into the studio and we're like playing through like everything we're about to record and playing that we like right this is cool in one take we we fire that down and it's like we're just like hang on there's something a bit special about this mm. and of course there's no lyrics at this point as well either so we're not only were we were we recording with Owen we were doing a gig in Camden on like New Year's Eve and it, it was a super exciting show I think it was the first time that we'd been paid like a grand for one show when we were like super excited but I remember we were sitting in the dressing room going like wow we need to come up with some lyrics for this this song and Tim's like sort of like asking me what, what do you think of this line I'm going yeah that's cool or that's that's not cool and it's like well what can I put in here and uh yeah so it was just like this super kind of off the cuff you know like lyric scribbled in a dressing room and then back to the studio to record the vocals and that as well so it was like a, a real moment of inspiration and uh it's one that you know people are hugely fond of. Right Rick pick me a couple of moments of the album that stand out for you. I definitely picked Goldfinger, which was the first song when we went into to do the uh, 1977 proper, like six weeks in the studio. We were recording our debut album after doing a bunch of singles. We also knew that we needed a single ready to go as soon as possible. So the first mission was to get Goldfinger knocked into shape. We decided that was going to be it. But the reason I pick it is because I think that really changed people's perspective on the band. Mm. Just going back to how we started with this like kind of like punky mini album into this sort of like Ramonesy kind of cartoon kung fu thing and followed up by like Girl from Mars and Angel Interceptor kind of like it was like more sort of a punk pop thing so then when Goldfinger comes along it was definitely definitely a, a surprise for people but I kind of like the idea of challenging audience expectations and that was that was definitely a song that, that challenged a lot of people but you know it, it really connected as well I think mm. lyrically 
really connected with kids around a similar age, age as us, but also with other musicians as well. I know we toured with Weezer towards the end of our US 1977 leg and Rivers Cuomo was just like fascinated by, by that song. He was like, I always write songs with these like really obvious chords. It's like, how do you come up with like this chord progression? It's like, it shouldn't work, but you've got this amazing melody over the top of it. It's, you know, it's definitely something that a lot of people musically go what is going on but also like emotionally resonate it almost felt like that was us like growing up a little bit that song as well just like a little bit of a change of direction and yeah it's definitely definitely one close to my heart for sure it's a brilliant song pick us another one i think we'll, we'll go for the single that never was um which is lost in you which now we're going to the other end of our our time at rockfield studio i think it was in the last couple of days Owen was like, I think we're missing a track here. You know, it's like, we've almost made a great album, but we need one more kind of down-tempo, ballad-esque kind of thing. So, like, Tim just kind of, like, ran off to his room in the studio and came back, like, a few hours later, I guess. I imagine the rest of us went to the pub. (laughs) which was, you know, a common occurrence. You go do the uh, hard work, we're going to have a drink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, yeah, that's what the songwriters do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we come back and he was just like, I- I've come up with this, and it's like sort of, it's a little bit kind of strangers in the night, but he'd, he'd come up with like this beautiful chord progression mm. and this beautiful melody, and he'd really quickly come up with like a lot of like lyric ideas on it as well. So it was like, it was literally our last day was like right into the studio. The drum kit was being packed up that night. All the gear was being picked up the next morning to go to the mixing studio, which, you know, you could do guitar overdubs, et cetera, but there's no room for a drum kit. So it was like, right, we have to get this knocked into shape. So it was like really kind of rough and ready. And I think you can hear a bit of that in the recording as well, but I think it, it turned out really, really beautiful. It's quite a, quite a heartfelt moment on the record. We'd released at that point five singles, like after, after the album came out, We'd four singles beforehand. The album came out. We released Oh Yeah. And I think the record company were pushing for another single. We were like six singles off a 12-track album. That's like half the songs. And we, were, we weren't comfortable with it. So we, we were like, no, let's not do it. But you just kind of wonder what would have happened if we maybe had done that. I always promise that when I do these shows, the radio version of these shows where we play the album in full, that I will play every single track off an album. And I feel like I'm forced to break that rule with 1977 i think you probably know why because i I can't i can't quite bring myself to play the hidden track sick party i might play a clip or something like that but i can't play the whole thing for those who don't know about sick party who have never discovered it at the very end after dark side light side on the album talk me through it (laughs) well believe it or not there is quite a backstory to this what what do we want to call it well i guess we can call it a track but it, it came from like we had this original idea to record this thing called The Scream, which was like something we did when we were very hungover in our van. We had to get up early in the morning. We just like to release the the tension and the, the, the awful feeling. We would just like start like just like start humming and then build up to this crescendo of just screaming just to get over our hangovers. <laughs> which I guess sounds like a weird thing as well. But then we go into the studio and we're like, let's record this as a secret track. And we've spent a lot of time recording this thing called The Scream. There was like 48 tracks of just pure madness going on. Now, I think one night in the studio, Mark had had a few beers. He wasn't feeling great. And he was like, I feel a bit sick. Let's set up a microphone. We'll record it as a track for The Scream. And uh, we recorded it. And then we were listening back the next day when we'd all kind of sobered up a bit. And uh, it was just like the funniest thing. 
and we were, we just listened to it in the studio a lot. I guess maybe we used that to kind of like break break up the kind of pressure as well. We were just like it was a kind of like our, our our release. We sort of like goof off and listen to this just ridiculous thing. And it was like, and then someone's like, instead of the scream, why don't we just put this in the album? That that's what happened. So um, it's buried about five minutes after the the final track. You know, and being big big Nirvana fans as well, you know, they they had a, a few obscure tracks mm. as hidden tracks. It was it was it was kind of a, a tribute to them in a way, but. It's not very Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> was there any pushback to including it on the album from the label, for example? Did they go, you might want to think again about this one, lads? No, not that I remember at all. I don't. I think you know. I think because it was like a hidden track, they didn't really weren't really really bothered. But I guess they didn't realise like how much it would be picked up on. I think. Hmm. As we were touring the record, we we kept we started hearing stories about people who'd fall asleep with the, with the CD on. You know, wake up and thinking, you know, they're they're being burglars or something like that. It was <laughs> quite, quite an unsettling experience. But, you know, I guess in a way, kind of fitting that we had this reputation of kids just going out, having the time of their life, lives, just getting drunk every night. So in a way, it kind of like wraps up the whole experience. I'm trying to say maybe there is some artistic merit to it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's a bit of anarchy at the end of the album, which is exactly what it needs. Yeah, exactly. Rick, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about this classic album. I've just got one more question for you. I want to know what you'd say to yourself if you met the 1995 version of yourself walking into Rockfield Studios about to start recording or start putting this album together. What piece of wisdom would you impart onto yourself? Something that you wish you knew then that you now know? I don't know. I'd probably tell myself to stop, have your fun in the 1977 tour and then just keep an eye on the drinking because I've actually been off, off the booze during lockdown and it's been the best thing ever for me. So, um, yeah, yeah, I definitely feel like I'm a better musician for it, probably a better person as well. So we'll, we'll end it in that sombre note. <laughs> <laughs> Commendable. Um, what's next for Ash? What are we going to see you guys doing in the future? Well, I guess, you know, we've um, as we were uh, recording our 1977 25th anniversary live stream that wasn't a live stream, we're also finishing off uh, our new record as well, which has been it's been in the pipeline for a long time, and we thought we'd get it out probably a couple of years ago, to be honest. Mm. But then we had uh, BMG, our current label, had uh, actually bought our back catalogue, and we put out the Teenage Wildlife Best of stuff, which you know was great, great to put out there, but it's kind of delayed our our new stuff a little bit. But I'm super excited to get that out, and it's probably not going to be until next year now. But I can't be more excited about it. I think it's some of some of our most interesting work. Having having talked about Goldfinger being like a, a perception changer from back in '95, I think this album's going to be a bit, a bit of a perception changer as well. So yeah, just can't wait to get that out. Fingers crossed. As of today, when we're recording this interview, our festivals are still going ahead in the summer. Check our website for those details, and just fingers crossed that's still happening. And we've got our tour in September, which is our postponed Teenage Wildlife, like celebrating the 25 years since um, Girl from Mars came out in 2020. So hopefully that will be going ahead. But yeah, new album next year and getting back into the tour and thing, you know, we, I can't believe how much we've all missed it. All good news. Always exciting to hear new music from Ash and always a pleasure to see you guys live. One of the best live bands out there. So look forward to seeing you back on the road very soon. Rick, been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time on the XS Long Player. Well, thanks very much for having me. I'm uh, great to get to celebrate this while we're while we're still not able to tour. So, thanks for having us. The XS
Access Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester. That's not quite it for this podcast discussing Ash 1977. There is one more bit to go because I was about to hang up the call with Rick and he said, oh, I've got to tell you one more thing. And the thing he had to tell me was about the cover of the first single from this album, Kung Fu. Here's what he said. Me and my me and my daughter were watching, um, I can't remember what game it was. It was a couple of nights ago we were watching a game, but I saw, I think it was Sleeper Mods posting something about Eric Cantona and someone had commented beneath and put, put up the cover. Uh, oh, yeah, because Eric Cantona was on the cover of Kung Fu, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that was, that was kind of like a mo- moment of cultural serendipity for us, which, you know, ties into the kind of like it being written in five minutes. I think we were, we were doing some gigs in London, like probably, you know, a few months after being recorded and the record company are like, right, what are your ideas for artwork? And none of us had a clue about it. I'm like, right, well, just come into, come into the record company tomorrow and we'll, we'll um, go through some stuff and see if we can come up with something that we like. So we got to the, we got to the record company offices and the, every single newspaper had Eric Cantona doing his Kung Fu kick on the cover of their newspaper. So we were like, can we get this photo? Don't see why not. It was just too good an opportunity to, to miss. So we, we bought the rights to that, that photo to use it. And uh, it's pretty great. And, you know, it's like 26 years later, I'm showing my daughter these pictures on my phone while, while watching the Euro. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Has Eric Cantona ever responded to the fact he's been on the cover of this single? Well, yes, he has actually, um, because... I think the, the way that photography rights work in France, they work they work different from the UK. Like in the UK, the photographer owns the rights. But in France, I think it's the photographer and the person pictured owns the rights. So we actually had to ask permission from Eric Cantona at the time. Say, like, can we use this in France? And we got a fax back from him just saying, I spit on your record. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just just amazing. It was obviously like very close to the time. I think you know he's he definitely looks at it as you know a kind of career defining moment. And he's happy yeah. to talk about it now, but I think at the time it was so raw that he was just kind of didn't want anything to do with it because he was obviously getting massive amount amount of flack. So we had to use a, like a different cover in France for that. But yeah, that was kind of great. And I wish I knew where that fax was. I'm sure it's in our archive somewhere. It's probably buried, but it'd be great to get that out and get it framed. That really is the end of today's podcast. Cheers for your ears. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this show. If you did, go and listen to some of the others. Embrace the Goodwill Out, Blossoms, debut album Blossoms, Badly Drawn Boy, Hour of the Bewilderbeast, just some of the albums that have been discussed on the Excess Long Player. So go and have a listen to that. And if you enjoy them, rate and review this podcast. Give us five stars. Pop a few comments in because I'm cripplingly insecure and I just need the love. Thanks for listening. See you next time for the next Excess Long Player. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, Access Manchester.